thank, thanks very much, uh, Rick, and thank all of you. It, it is really a pleasure to be back here. Uh, I haven't been at Meerschaum for a while, um, but I feel this remarkable debt of gratitude to this particular institution because it really was the first institution that ever gave sort of public acknowledgement that I might have a career in this business that, that <laughs> might, might work out. And I think actually the, the book prize that... Uh, Mirshan has awarded over the years has has done a remarkable job in helping legitimate the field of security studies uh, in the academic world. Uh, and given that it's always under siege in the academic world, it actually performs a pretty valuable function. Uh, I also am looking forward to getting your questions and comments because what I'm really going to talk about is, in a sense, a work in progress. Um, I want to talk today about the American position in the world and the ways that other states are trying to deal with American power. Um, we all know that the end of the Cold War left the United States in this unprecedented position of primacy, and with a lay audience, I would sort of go through the ritual set of sound bites and statistics to demonstrate just how preponderant our role is. I think with this audience, I'm going to sort of skip past that, but you all know the basic set of facts about the share of the world economy, share of military spending, the cultural shadow that we cast uh, over the rest of the world. Uh, I will put one soundbite in there because it's one of my favorites. Uh, the top 25 grossing films of all time are Hollywood productions. If you only count foreign ticket sales and don't count the tickets sold in the United States. Just foreign ticket sales, top 25 are still ours. Now, for lots of Americans, uh, both sort of scholars and pundits, the big question was what should the United States do with this remarkable position of primacy? I think that's an important question, but I want to look at the sort of flip side of that. What does the rest of the world do about American primacy? Uh, you can put this in colloquial terms. How do you deal with an 800-pound gorilla? Uh, what does the rest of the world do? And in contrast to some of the more enthusiastic proponents of American primacy, I think other states do have lots of options, and we can already see them using them. Uh, so three big questions today. Uh, first of all, why do other states fear, hate, or resent American power? Why isn't American primacy just welcomed by everybody? Uh, second, what can the rest of the world do about American primacy? What are their options and how do they work? And finally, given what they are likely to do, what are some of the things that we might do in response to what they're likely to do? What does it tell us about U.S. foreign policy? Now, before I do that, I do want to just do one little digression here. Um, uh, about the intellectual underpinnings uh, of this work. Um, as most of you know, most of my prior work lies within the realist tradition, and as you'll see, I draw on some of those ideas in what follows. But as I began working on this project, I found that sort of classic realism, I don't mean classical realism, uh, had some real limitations when dealing with this topic. I mean, first of all, most IR theory up until 1991-92 took as given the existence of roughly equal sovereign states, at least two, sometimes more. We had lots of data, lots of theorizing about bipolarity and multipolarity, um, where the differences in power were there, but they might not be all that great. Uh, we didn't have much theory, and we didn't have much evidence about what world politics would be like if one state was in a position not of hegemony, but preponderance, real preponderance. If you look at Waltz's version of realism, it's all about the constraints that states face as a result of being in a world with lots of other states of roughly equal capability. You could argue, I think, the United States doesn't face the same set of constraints, and its actions, therefore, are going to be more independent of the responses of others. 
realism may tell you a little bit about the permissive conditions, but isn't going to tell you very much about what we do or what others do in response. Uh, realism also focuses primarily on states, and we've seen some, since September 11th that at least some non-state actors can get our attention uh, rather easily. So I began looking at some other bodies of scholarship, and the work that I have found most interesting, uh, at least as a way of getting my own brain humming, has been the work of people like Jim Scott at Yale, uh, who have written about political situations where the distribution of power is very heavily skewed and looking at the strategies that the weaker actors can follow even when all of the power lies on the other side. For example, looking at prisons or concentration camps, feudal societies, uh, different places where uh, slave societies, another good example, where the weaker parties are very weak relative to the groups in charge. But even in those situations, even in a prison, even in a concentration camp, the inmates have some strategies available to them to try and limit the ability of the dominant powers to do everything that they want, to carve out little spheres of autonomy within an otherwise highly stratified social setting. Um, and then it, that set of literature made me wonder whether or not it told me something about how the international system is working now, where states might not be able to overthrow American primacy, but they may be able to do lots of things to limit our autonomy and maximize their own, even though the United States remains the, the dominant global power. The bottom line here is what follows is a pretty theoretically eclectic uh, mix of ideas. Um, it's not, this is not a sort of why realism is so great kind of talk. If anybody wants to have a big inter-paradigm debate, I'm willing to do that. I've done plenty of that in the past, but that's not what this project is about. Uh, it's arguable that this project may be more useful than all that other stuff. <laughs> um, sorry, Randy's not here. <laughs> anyway, let me now uh, let me now get this uh, get this rolling. Um, Americans tend to see the United States as a benevolent force in world affairs, and I've given you some representative statements up here. Uh, Sam Huntington, uh, U.S. primacy is central to the future of freedom, democracy, and international order. That's a, a lot writing on U.S. primacy here. <laughs> Bill Clinton, it's, uh, we are indispensable to stable political relations, a beacon of hope around the world. This is from the Bush administration's national security strategy. We seek a balance of power that favors human freedom. Uh, a couple of well-known neoconservatives, Bill Kristol, Robert Kagan. American hegemony is the only reliable defense against the breakdown of peace and international order. And Tony Blair, who I'm including here as an honorary American, uh, America is a force for good. Anti-Americanism is a foolish indulgence. Uh, but not everybody agrees with that set of statements. Uh, John le Carre in the Times of London uh, last year, America has gone mad. That was the headline. Uh, Arundhati Roy, an Indian novelist, American foreign policy has created a huge reservoir of resentment. Uh, the German novelist Gunther Grass, Bush is close to Osama bin Laden. Both are always speaking about God. This man, Bush, is a danger to his own country. He's destroying the image of the United States for years. Former foreign minister of Canada, not particularly anti-American, but describing the Helms-Burton legislation in the 1990s. This is bullying, but in America, you call it global leadership. Uh, Ken Livingston, the mayor of London, this was just before Bush's visit to London last fall. Uh, the greatest threat to life on this planet we've most probably ever seen. 
All right, he's a red, but you know, what the heck. Um, Harold Pinter, comparing the United States with Nazi Germany. Uh, now you could argue, well, that's just, you know, another English novelist playwright, but there's the Prime Minister of Spain, recently elected. War in Iraq was a disaster. You can't organize war with lies. And then some guy named Bin Laden, you steal our wealth and oil. The White House gangsters are the biggest butchers of the age. Um, so it's clear that not everybody sees the world the way Americans do. And here's just a set of quotations, which I won't read, from various media outlets, none of them particularly radical. I mean, The Economist, not normally regarded as a left-wing publication, uh, the very idea of multilateral cooperation Mr. Bush objects to, the Toronto Star, someone soon for the sake of the survival of this planet has to say loud and clear, Yankee, go home and stay there, the Asahi Shimbun, kind of a middle of the road uh, Japanese newspaper, uh, it calls us a misguided superpower that wants to make all the rules. Now, again, as some of you have probably been following, you get the same results if you start looking at public opinion polls. And again, what I want to highlight here most is the difference between the perceptions of how we see ourselves and how the rest of the world sees us. So does American foreign policy consider the interests of others? All right, uh, either a great deal or a fair amount. We think 75% in 2003, and we still think 70% in 2004. But you notice the rest of the world doesn't quite have the same numbers. In fact, it kind of flip-flops pretty dramatically, particularly in some parts of the world. Um, Second one, what is your overall impression of the United States? Just giving you the percent favorable. And what's interesting there is the trend line over time, particularly with respect to Europe. Um, the low point obviously coming uh, with the outbreak of war against Iraq. Some rebounds in some places since then. A few of them, Indonesia, quite striking. South Korea uh, also, I think, is striking given our historic role there. Um, this is a little bit worrisome. This is asking people in different countries what their image of different world figures is. Uh, President Bush does very well at home. Um, Chirac doesn't do nearly as well. Uh, Bin Laden, they didn't even ask Americans, uh, which is not surprising. Kofi Annan, you know, not too bad. But then if you look at the rating for Bush and you compare Bush's ratings with Bin Laden's ratings, that should bother us uh, a fair degree. So again, capturing that our image of ourselves and the world image, then you approve of the way we're handling international policy. Uh, again, the American numbers much higher than anybody else's numbers. Um, this is a nice one. Uh, if you ask, should the United States be the world's only superpower? Um, we think that's a pretty cool idea. 42% of Americans like that idea. Nobody else does. Uh, the Europeans like the idea of becoming a superpower. We're not so sure. Uh, we think that's such a great idea. Uh, I think the numbers, by the way, on uh, the Netherlands, I've got to find out more about because those just strike me as interesting. Um, may even be a misprint. Um, would it be a good thing if, we became, if the EU became as powerful as us? Uh, we think it would be a bad thing. The Europeans in general uh, think it would be uh, a good thing. Um, and this is, captures a little bit on the uh, role of international institutions. Uh, do you think, fill in the blank, your country should have UN approval? We're, we think UN approval is really not that important kind of a problem. The Europeans think UN approval is a prerequisite. What I find interesting here is there are a number of other countries that actually have our view of this, too. They don't trust the UN any more than Americans tend to. Um, 
All right, the bottom line here is that the rest of the world doesn't have quite the same view of American primacy that we have. And then the question is, why is this the case? And here I want to try and uh, explain why I think other countries are as concerned by American power as I think they are. Uh, first and foremost, it's what we are. Um, but by that, I don't mean uh, our religious beliefs, our liberal democratic values, or aspects of American culture. Rather, I think the first and foremost reason other states worry about American power is because we are the most powerful country in the world. In this sense, it is at least partly hardwired into the structure of the international system. Now, this might seem strange to us, and I'll say more about that in a second, but you have to ask yourself how Americans would feel if there were some other country in the world as far ahead of us today as we are now ahead of the other major powers, uh, even the other major powers put together. Would that make us nervous? Uh, it seems to me it's clear that it would. In fact, the last time another country was way ahead of us, it worried us a lot. That country was Great Britain, and we didn't have a very good relationship with Great Britain throughout most of the 19th century because we worried about British power the same way others worry about ours. This is, you know, the realism part of this talk, right? Realism 101. In anarchy, states worry about what the strongest powers might be up to. Now, there is an obvious objection uh, to this. Uh, the United States is a peace-loving democracy that will use its power only for good purposes in the world. American primacy is good for the world, and most states have nothing to worry about. That's those first set of quotations I put up there. The view is widely held in both American political parties, um, and certainly held by people who advocate a more energetic American foreign policy. Um, I even have some sympathy for it myself. Um, but there are three problems with that argument. Uh, first, even if we are acting benevolently today, even if you take that as an assumption, nobody can be entirely sure that they're not going to end up in our crosshairs at some point uh, down the road. Uh, and just as an illustration of that, the current stated policy of the U.S. government is that we will take action preemptively against potential terrorists, against states we think are in cahoots with potential terrorists, states that might be acquiring weapons of mass destruction, and we'll do this whether or not we have anybody else supporting us, although, of course, we would like someone supporting us. Now, that would be worrisome if anybody said it, but it's especially worrisome when the world's most powerful country declares that preemption is its stated policy, at least in certain circumstances. Second, even states that don't have to worry about us attacking them, and I think that's most of the world, in fact, have to worry about American power, because conflicts of interest do arise, and when you're weaker than someone else, they're more likely to be able to get their way than you are. So back in 1956, the United States could use its economic power to push Britain, France, and Israel out of Egypt, because we didn't approve of their invasion. In 1971, we went off the gold standard and forced everyone to accommodate our preferences for how the world economy should be run. In 1997, when Japan was trying to organize a financial bailout of some of the Asian economies, the U.S. Treasury Department basically told the Japanese to butt out. We would take care of that because we didn't want the Japanese taking on a larger role in the world economy. The point is, when you're as big as we are, you get your way more often, and that's why others don't like it. That's good for us. I'm not arguing that we'd be better off if we were number two, but it helps explain why others worry about it. Um, finally, for the rest of the world, the problem isn't that the United States might use its power to harm them deliberately. Uh, they also worry that we might use our power in ways that will affect their interests inadvertently. 
So if we take action in the Middle East and the results of our actions in the Middle East are to drive up world oil prices, never mind how, but we could do things that might drive oil prices up, every oil importing country gets hurt. Not because the United States wanted to hurt them, but because it did something that hurt them inadvertently. If we decided we had to take out North Korea's nuclear facilities, this might have negative effects on South Korea, not because we wanted to hurt South Korea, but because it was an indirect effect of a policy we conducted for other reasons. So bottom line here, other states have reasons to worry about our power because they don't know how we're going to use it. Um, Pierre Trudeau had this nice line, the Prime Minister of Canada, um, that people like to quote, uh, being near the United States is like sleeping with an elephant. No matter how well behaved the beast is, you are still affected by every twitch and grunt. Um, and that's essentially the problem the rest of the world now has with us, even when we are well-intentioned. Um, we just add one other footnote to that. Um, it, this is compounded by our size relative to others. What can be a minor issue for us can often be a major issue uh, for others. So, for example, for the United States, providing agricultural subsidies to cotton farmers is a kind of trivial issue of American domestic politics. It's a way that congressmen from certain countries or certain states that grow a lot of cotton get reelected. Right? We don't think of it as a big issue of national importance. If you're a cotton exporting country in West Africa, however, this could be an issue of major importance because a lot of your economy is riding on your ability to export. And if we're subsidizing our cotton producers, we're putting them out of work in a serious way. We're not doing that policy in order to put them out of work, but that's the effect it has. And we barely notice that it's happening because we're very big and they're not. All right, the second problem. All right, problem number one is what we are and what I mean by that is we're big. Second problem is, of course, we do use our power in ways that affect other states' uh, interests and sometimes harm them. And if you look at the survey that I drew most of that public opinion stuff from, uh, it concludes, quote, antipathy towards the United States is shaped more by what it does in the international arena than by what it stands for politically and economically. Uh, there is, in fact, same survey shows lots of admiration for American culture, lots of admiration for the American economy, for American democracy. People envy our legal system, which may surprise some Americans. Um, there's lots of respect and admiration for our scientific achievements as well. So in fact, lots of people around the world like lots of things about American society. They just don't like what we do out there in the world. And I want to underscore something. I am not bashing America here. I'm trying to explain why and how we look to the rest of the world. If pressed, I would probably argue the United States is more, there's better behaved relative to most great powers um, but we still need to understand that not everything we've done is perfect, and some of the things we've done clearly provoke foreign opposition. Um, for example, we think we're a peace-loving country that acts only for good, but we have tried to hurt other countries. You just have to talk to Russians and Serbs and Nicaraguans and Iranians and others, and they will give you a long list of the things uh, that, in their view, we've done to them. Uh, we certainly did support, in the Cold War, a number of regimes that in retrospect, look pretty uh, reprehensible. It shouldn't surprise us, and people who were victims of those regimes don't look upon us with great affection. Um, second, it's worth noting that lots of the anti-American responses around the world are just that. They are responses to specific things we are doing. 
Well, for example, the Defense Science Board did a study in 1998 of anti-American terrorist incidents overseas and found, and now I'm quoting, a strong correlation between U.S. involvement in international situations and increased terrorist attacks on the United States or on U.S. installations. Now, I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying that American foreign policy in these parts of the world is wrong. We may be engaged in exactly the right policy, but the point is that people who are attacking us aren't attacking us because they hate American culture. They're attacking us because they don't want us in a particular region or they don't like our particular policy. Still may be the right policy. This is the price we're paying for that particular policy. So, for example, Pan Am Flight 103 was part of a long series of tit-for-tats between the United States and Libya. I'm not criticizing the policy. I'm just pointing that Gaddafi didn't get up one day and decided he wanted to kill a bunch of Americans without any larger context. And, of course, al-Qaeda's entire program is based, at least in part, to things that we are doing in the world, not so much what American values are. Uh, last point on this one. Um, even when the United States is doing some, kind of, uh, some worthy activity, when the policy is basically right, such as ousting the Taliban, uh, pursuing al-Qaeda in different parts of the world, it's likely to harm innocent people in ways that may make them resent or hate the United States. Uh, the policy of economic sanctions that we had in place against Iraq for a long time hurt a lot of innocent Iraqis. It was a relatively crude weapon. Uh, we've seen both in Afghanistan and Iraq the classic sort of friendly fire problem that you don't always hit what you're aiming at, your intelligence is not always perfect, innocent people are always going to be casualties there. Um, and again, that's not a criticism of American policy. That's an understanding that military force is a crude instrument and it will have effects that you don't always intend. There's also the problem of the American footprint around the world, given that we are in lots of places. One of the explanations for those South Korea numbers, in my judgment, is the fact that we've had a lot of troops in South Korea for a long time. And the way to think about this is imagine that since 1953, there had been 30,000 South Korean troops stationed in Columbus, Ohio. Right, now, that might be good for the restaurant business and the bar business, but my guess is it would also have caused a certain amount of social friction over time. Right, there might even be some resentment within the population of Columbus and the population of Ohio, what these foreigners are still doing here. Right? And that might be especially true in younger generations that weren't grateful for the military role they played. I think the same sort of thing is now uh, going on, unfortunately, in Iraq. I mean, this seems mystifying to many Americans. Why aren't these people grateful? Well, the fact is many of them are. But some of them are not. And the reason, I think, is pretty simple. Nobody really likes being told what to do by a heavily armed foreigner who doesn't speak your language. Right. And I was thinking, you know, what if we ended this talk and we all walked outside and there were 500 heavily armed German soldiers? I know that's hard to imagine, but heavily armed German soldiers all telling us where to go. Walk this way, don't go there, don't walk that way, and none of them spoke any English. And they were being quite forceful and intimidating to get us to do that. And then we got up tomorrow and the same thing happened. And we got up the day after that and the same thing happened. My suspicion is a number of us would start to resent being told what to do by these people who we hadn't invited here, even if they were here for some worthy purpose. All right, a final reason why anti-Americanism arises. 
um, is hypocrisy. And again, I, I don't want to suggest that I think the United States is an unusually hypocritical country. I think all people are hypocritical, and I think all countries are hypocritical. But it's a bigger problem for us, given how visible we are and how active we are around the world. Um, just some examples. Uh, we like to talk a lot about international law, and we get very upset if other countries violate it. But like everybody else, we ignore international law when it's inconvenient for us. Um, we had declared that preventing the proliferation of nuclear weapons is a major goal of our foreign policy. I think it ought to be. We condemn Iraq and, or India and Pakistan for testing a few of them, even though we've tested over a thousand in the last 50 years. We fought a war against Iraq because we thought Saddam Hussein might be trying to get his hands on a few. And yet, of course, the United States has an arsenal of thousands of weapons and intends to keep them for a long, long, long time. Now, I'm not arguing against American policy here, but boy, this doesn't look very consistent to the rest of the world. Um, we like free trade. We talk about other countries opening their markets to us, except when there's a congressional election coming up and there's some steel manufacturers in trouble in some key states that are up for grabs in an election. Um, we are outraged, understandably, by the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, but we sometimes forget that we did similar things in World War II. We deliberately targeted civilians, not just collateral damage, deliberate targeting of civilians. And I was in Japan shortly after September 11th, and they were all very sympathetic, but virtually every Japanese person I talked to mentioned Hiroshima in the sort of now you know what it's like right, to have civilians be attacked. Um, last but not least, we condemn Palestinian terrorism and suicide bombings, and we should, but then we describe, or our president describes the Prime Minister of Israel as a man of peace. Right? <laughs> Ariel Sharon is many things, and some of them impressive, but if you look at his full career, going back to the 1950s, that's really straining the definition a long way, and that's certainly how it looks, because it looks hypocritical to the rest of the world. Um, again, this is a problem for us, uh, not because we're uniquely hypocritical, but because we have such a prominent global role. Right, now, the big question, of course, is does any of this really matter? Because another counter-argument is to say, yes, countries don't like our global role. They don't like all the things we're trying to do. They're worried uh, about what we might do in the future. But the fact is we are the 800-pound gorilla, and there's not much anybody can do about it. So the point is to you know, stay the course and keep doing things that will ultimately make the world a safer place. Uh, nobody can really touch us anyway. Uh, and I want to now start talking about the different things that states can do about American power. Uh, the first set I want to talk about are basically the strategies of accommodation, things you do if you basically want to go along with us. But you want to do that in a way that's to your greatest advantage. And then I'll talk about the resistance in a minute. Uh, first way to deal with the 800-pound gorilla is, of course, let them do whatever they want. Uh, if you can't beat them, join them. And I want to break this down into several different options. Uh, the first one is bandwagoning, uh, which some of you will know about from my earlier work. Um, maybe we can scare enough countries into supporting us because they're fearful. Uh, my definition of bandwagoning is it's basically alignment with a dominant power because you're scared and you don't want to be on its bad side. Um, I think there is, in fact, a little bit to this. Uh, lots of countries are being pretty prudent in the face of American power, uh, even if they're resentful of it. Uh, they're not taking a lot of overt action to, 
to oppose us, but I think American power does generate a certain degree of respect around the world. But there's not much evidence, as I read it, that we've been able to intimidate other countries into supporting us out of a sense of fear. Serbia didn't cave in. We had to fight a war with Kosovo uh, to get them. North Korea certainly hasn't run up the white flag, despite considerable pressure. Iraq never surrendered. We had to invade the country and oust the regime. Iran uh, hasn't suddenly run up the white flag either. The Palestinians, despite enormous pressure from the United States and also from Israel over many years, haven't uh, suddenly said, yes, they're coming over to our side. Russia and China are collaborating with us on a number of areas of common interest, but saying no to us on a number of others. And I think the only really clear example of bandwagoning you can point to is perhaps Libya. So I wanted to say a couple things about, about Libya. Uh, it's been argued, in fact, I think Condi Rice mentioned it uh, this morning, um, that Libya's recent decision to get rid of its weapons of mass destruction programs is a direct result of the war in Iraq, right? We've demonstrated our power. Gaddafi was getting nervous, saw what happened to Saddam, wanted to avoid a similar fate. Uh, let me make four points there. I think there's something to this. I wouldn't want to argue that the war in Iraq had no effect whatsoever. But Libya is a pretty weak and inconsequential country. Its nuclear program, we now know, was in fact not very far along. They weren't working very hard on it. It wasn't proceeding very swiftly. They bought a bunch of stuff, but they weren't putting it together. It didn't appear to be a top national priority. Third, it was in deep economic trouble in part because of some things we were doing through the United Nations and on our own. Uh, in fact, Libya made its first offer to give up its WMD programs in 1998, long before the war on Iraq. And what's been happening since then is sort of haggling over the terms and verification and how it was going to be done. So I'd argue that maybe the Libyan case is an example of bandwagoning, but there's a lot going on there. I wouldn't want to give all the credit uh, to the war in Iraq. Even the Libyan case is not uh, clear-cut here. Bottom line is I don't think there's a lot of bandwagoning happening. What you see instead is a lot of regional balancing. Uh, use American power to help deal with some local problem uh, that you have. This has been, in fact, the traditional motive for lots of U.S. alliances for the past 50 years or so. NATO was a regional balancing alliance. Right? The Europeans allied with us to deal with the threat posed by the Soviet Union. You now see countries like Taiwan and especially countries like Singapore reacting to the end of the Cold War by wanting to solidify ties with the United States because they like the regional role that we play. You also see in the Persian Gulf countries like Qatar and Dubai liking a close relationship with the United States because we help them balance off other local countries in the region, whether it was Iraq under Saddam, Saudi Arabia, or Iran. They actually prefer a close relationship uh, with us. It's a very good strategy. The only thing Americans have to worry about is that we end up getting dragged into problems that really aren't our business. Um, for example, lots of countries today talk about the danger that they face from terrorism, and I think sometimes that's legitimate, and certainly we ought to help them with that in certain circumstances. But what if the terrorists that they're worried about aren't anti-American? Sort of no, we're not on that particular terrorist group's agenda. Some of the countries that have a terrorism problem might be making it worse through their own policies. Right? We ought to at least be careful about hitching up with countries who want us to help balance a regional problem until we're clear that that regional problem is one that we worry about too. 
right, third variation, uh, ingratiation, and here the poster child is Tony Blair. Um, it's not bandwagoning mean, because it's not based on fear. Rather, it's alignment with the United States to try and get as much influence as you can over American policy. Uh, sort of leverage your own power by linking it with ours. We get legitimacy by having coalitions of the willing. Others gain influence greater than one might otherwise expect. And Blair is really the master of this. Right? He sort of said, I think his line is, you know, I want to hug them close. Uh, stand on Bush's shoulder and whisper in his ear. And by the way, Blair, of course, is completely nonpartisan because he did the same thing with Bill Clinton. Right? He was Clinton's best friend, too. And, you know, this is a strategy. It's not just based on personal affinities. The only point I'd make here is not very many states can really pull this off. Right? You, it requires a pretty close uh, alignment of interests as well. And it can cause leaders from other countries some pretty serious political problems, as we've seen in Spain, and I think as we've seen with Great Britain. The United States also has to be willing to play along with this strategy and make some concessions so it looks like you're actually getting something for the relationship. Right? Whether it's, uh, okay, we'll go to the Security Council, or, okay, you can have a few of your people out of Guantanamo a little faster than everybody else does because we're such good friends. So we have to be willing to make some concessions in order to make this work. Right. The final strategy uh, I would call penetration. And here you try to get the United States to do what you want by manipulating the American domestic political system. We are a very unusual country in how open we are to foreign influence because we have such an open political system. Uh, there's lots of ways of influencing American policy, lots of channels into the uh, U.S. government. And there's lots of different countries and different groups that have tried to do this. Uh, and I'm going to talk about three of them. I mean, the most obvious one that everybody knows about is the Israeli lobby. And let me just document a couple of things that are kind of peculiar about that case and then talk about two other cases. Um, Israel now gets uh, the largest amount of foreign aid of any country in the world from the United States. It gets about $500 per year per Israeli. Um, compared with the number two country, which is Egypt, which gets about $30 per year per Egyptian. Now, remember, Egypt has a much larger population. That's why. Um, this, the aid to Israel is not aid given to a poor country. Israel has a per capita income larger than Spain. So we're giving this to actually a modernized, uh, largely industrial power here. Now, I would argue, and this is more controversial, I would argue that the rationale for American aid to Israel is much lower today than it has ever been in the last 30 or 40 years. Back in the Cold War, you could make an argument that Israel was a big strategic asset for the United States and we ought to be really closely tied with them. I don't think you can make that argument very powerfully any longer because there's no Cold War to fight anymore. And we don't have to worry about that. And in the major problem we have today, which is international terrorism, they're not an asset. They're a liability because they're part of what's causing our terrorism problem. You also notice in the last two Gulf Wars, Israel wasn't an asset either. We actually had to divert assets to protecting Israel, and we couldn't obviously use them in the war. You can also make a moral argument for the relationship but I think, and I believe parts of the moral argument, but that's not as powerful as an argument as it was before the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. After 30 years of essentially Israeli colonialism, the moral rationale is weaker. I'm not saying it's zero, but it's weaker. Yet the American strategic and aid relationship 
does nothing but go up. So we have this puzzle. The rationale is getting weaker, but the aid's getting bigger. And the reason for this, of course, is the way in which our domestic political system has been manipulated. Just two final points here. What I find especially interesting about this is that in America, we tend to debate almost any controversial issue, and we especially debate them in Congress. Pick your issue, right? Abortion, campaign finance reform, gay marriage, prayer in schools, right? Any of these things, we argue like crazy. There are people on both sides of these issues. We have lovely heated debates. That's how our political system works. Nobody in the American political system openly and actively debates the U.S. relationship with Israel. It's professional suicide if you try, because there is a very well-organized lobby, part, mostly Jewish Americans, but not entirely Jewish Americans by any means, um, that does this very much in collusion with the Israeli government. And this is why Prime Minister Sharon said, when people ask me how to help Israel, I tell them, help APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Um, this is why Congressman Richard Gebhardt told the APAC annual meeting, quote, if it were not for your efforts, this alliance would not exist. And he wasn't being an investigative reporter there. He was just standing up and praising APAC for what it had done. Now, the key point I want to emphasize here is there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing illegitimate about this. This is how American politics works. We are an interest group based political system. Whether you are a steel manufacturer looking for protectionist tariffs, a cotton farmer looking for aid subsidies, or an ethnic lobby looking to manipulate American foreign policy. It's how we do it in this business. So I don't think there's anything illegitimate about it, but we all ought to recognize what's going on here and worry about the possibility that in certain circumstances, our foreign policy is going to be skewed in ways that aren't consistent with the national interest. And let me give you two other examples. Other countries are on to this strategy. There is a large Indian-American population now, and it's actually quite a successful population. By some estimates, it has the highest per capita income of any ethnic population now in the United States. Lots of Silicon Valley engineers, things like that. And they've begun to mobilize with lots of different little PACs and interest groups of various kinds. Um, this is a report of an Indian government committee looking at the Indian diaspora around the world and figuring out how it can be used. And here's what it says, right? Indo-Americans have effectively mobilized on issues ranging from the nuclear test, that was designed to water down any sanctions we might do, or to Cargill, the crisis with Pakistan, played a crucial role in uh, Congress, etc. And, of course, the last line is the critical one. The Indian community in the United States constitutes an invaluable asset in strengthening India's relationship with the world's only superpower. Indian Americans are an asset they can use to get things they want. Um, second example is Armenia. There has been a well-organized Armenian American community, which for most of the Cold War was focused on resurrecting uh, memories of the Armenian genocide. Uh, since the end of the Cold War, they've gotten much more engaged in foreign policy interests. Um, and here's a statement from Armenian International magazine. Uh, we in the Armenian diaspora have a unique opportunity to exercise our dual allegiance to our host country and to Armenia. We should take advantage of our rights as citizens of the host country, that's us, that's America, to gain its support for Armenia. And this clearly works. U.S. aid to Armenia is about $13 per capita per year. That doesn't sound like very much, does it? Except if you look at all of Armenia's neighbors, all the other Caspian Basin countries, it's $1.50 a year. For some strange, mysterious reason, we give eight times more aid to Armenia. 
We also have legislation sponsored by the Armenian lobby to prevent the United States from giving any aid to Azerbaijan. Right? Why? Because, of course, they were at war with each other. And if you then say, well, which of these countries might be a strategic asset? Azerbaijan's got the oil, folks. Armenia has almost nothing. Right? And if you try to compare them on human rights or democracy grounds, they both come out about equal. Right? Again, suggest that what's really going on here is domestic politics. And this is clearly, this idea is clearly one of the ways that other countries around the world are going to try and deal with American power by manipulating it. All right, what about ways of opposing us? Uh, I couldn't leave balancing out of here. Uh, the most obvious thing other countries could do, it's what classic IR theory would predict, uh, is you know, form alliances or, or collaborate uh, against us. As lots of people have pointed out, we see remarkably little of that happening. Remarkably little overt balancing. Right? I still think, you know, everyone, whenever you see Ken Waltz, ask him why there's no coalition to balance the United States. Um, but you do see some signs of anti-American collaboration, and some people have called this soft balancing. Um, there's this sort of not very serious but kind of interesting Sino-Russian friendship treaty. Uh, Russia gave a variety of forms of support to Serbia and Iraq during the 1990s. Um, the group of 21, this group of countries that sort of formed a loose coalition at the Doha Round trade talks, uh, actually quite effectively. And my favorite example of soft balancing, of course, is what France, Germany, and Russia did in the Security Council over Iraq. They basically linked arms, collaborated, coordinated their strategies, and by doing it, they made it possible for all the other members of the Security Council to stiff the United States as well. The fact that those three hung together in a coordinated coalition made it possible for others then to resist the pressure we were putting on them uh, to support us and denied the United States the legitimacy of Security Council approval imposed greater political costs on us as a result. I think that's the form that balancing is likely to take, not you know, the formation of an anti-American NATO, but lots of places where countries try to find ways to collaborate to make our life more difficult. A second strategy, asymmetric responses. Uh, don't engage in a direct test of strength with the United States. Look for ways of conducting the competition on terms more favorable to the weaker actor. I think of this in terms of Tiger Woods. Right, if, I had, if someone said, you have to go compete with Tiger Woods, I'd say, okay, great, happy to. Let's not do golf. <laughs> Piano playing, uh, it's something like political science, I'll do it. Uh, if they said, no, you've got to do it in golf, I'd say, okay, but we're not doing driving. Right? We're going to do putting. I'll still lose, but I have you know, some chance I might do okay in, in putting. And I'm, by the way, I don't play golf, but you get the idea. Um, and this is what we see, of course, other groups around the world doing. And I think there are three main variations on this that you can see now. Uh, one is terrorism, the classic weapon of the week. Don't take on the American military in the open ocean or in a large-scale tank battle. Go after American civilians use terrorism in a variety of ways. Acquire weapons of mass destruction as a way of countering America's conventional military superiority. It doesn't allow you to dominate the world, but it allows you to make the United States think twice about using its conventional forces. And finally, uh, look for ways of exploiting particular American 
vulnerabilities at the conventional level, or at least areas that we're not as capable. Now, some of you know more about this than I do. Uh, I'm drawing some of what I'm saying here from this, uh, I think, terrific article Barry Posen wrote in IS uh, called Command of the Commons. The basic argument is that the United States has command of most of the common areas of the globe, right? the sky above 15,000 feet, the open oceans, uh, things like that. We're almost untouchable in these areas. Um, we don't dominate what he calls the contested zone, urban warfare, close-in infantry combat, uh, right on the, the literal, right on the shore, shallow water, amphibious warfare, things like that. The United States can still win in those contexts, but we pay a price for it. We're not untouchable. Um, now, if you have to take on the United States, or you fear you might have to take on the United States, you want to try and make sure the competition gets conducted in one of those areas, in the contested zone, where you can make the United States pay a price for it, and you therefore want to design weapons and strategies and invite support from others to try and meet the United States in that way. I think what we've seen now in the past year in Iraq is quite instructive. Right? The Iraqis figured out after 1991 that big open field tank warfare is not a good idea against us. We're really good at it. Right? Urban warfare, insurgency, terrorism, that sort of thing, we have much more difficulty handling. Not because we're not good and competent and trying hard, because it's just inherently more difficult for any military to respond to. The main purpose of asymmetric responses is in not, in fact, to alter the global balance of power. It's simply to try and impose a larger cost on the United States for operating uh, the way it wants to. Strategy number three, blackmail. Uh, threaten to do something we won't like that we can't easily prevent and then agree that you won't do it if you get paid off. Um, and North Korea used to be the world master at this. Right, the problem is the North Koreans tried it too many times. Right, it worked in the 1990s. Right, and then they came back and essentially tried to do it again. And quite reasonably, the United States has said, no, look, when you pay off a blackmailer, you expect him to, be, to stay paid off. They don't have a whole lot of credibility here. Um, but there, it's at least a nice illustration of a very weak state getting concessions. I mean, how else is North Korea going to get us to give them food aid, oil aid, and a couple of free nuclear reactors? Right, by threatening to do something nasty. The other point I'd make about blackmail is allies can do this to you too. Uh, every time Hamid Karzai of Afghanistan shows up in the West, what does he say? He basically says, if you don't give me more aid, I might collapse. And you won't like that very much. Very bad for you if I collapse. This is the same argument that Pervez Musharraf of Pakistan makes. I may be a dictator. I may have supported our nuclear program in the past but I'm the only option you have right now. If something happens to me, good luck trying to get somebody to run Pakistan, and therefore I'd like some more of your help on a variety of, of these issues. So blackmail is not something just your enemies can do. It's something your friends can do too. Two more. Uh, passive resistance. I, I think of this as the Nancy Reagan strategy. Just say no. Um, <laughs> You don't have to resist the United States openly. You can just politely refuse to comply with what we're asking. We've been asking the Russians to stop helping the Iranian nuclear program, stop building the Boucher reactor for, I don't know, you probably know how long, a long time. And every time we go and request it, they listen and they nod politely, and then they continue the aid. They just say no because they have correctly calculated that we're not going to punish them 
very much, if at all for that, because there's lots of other aspects of U.S.-Russian relations that we want to preserve. This is one they can basically stiff us on, and other countries can do this too. This is a problem for us as we think about the war on terrorism, because the danger isn't really that others are going to help the terrorists. The danger is that they're not going to help us as enthusiastically as we would like them to. We've gotten, I think, a fair degree of cooperation in the last couple of years, but I do worry, as anti-Americanism anti rises, that more and more countries around the world will find it difficult to do really sustained, enthusiastic 24-7 help to the Americans on the terrorist front. So they'll do just enough to keep us happy, but not as much as we'd really like. All right, last one, delegitimation. Um, the United States would like the rest of the world to view its power in the way that first slide suggested, that we're basically principled, virtuous, and acting for the greater good of mankind. That's the way we want people to think about us, because a position of primacy is most effective when others think you kind of deserve to be number one and that you're using your power in a benevolent way. Groups that oppose the United States would like to persuade as many people as possible that we're selfish, evil, venal, capricious, lacking in wisdom, and don't deserve to be number one. So what we have going on is essentially a struggle for the hearts and minds of the rest of the world. This, in my view, is why you get this constant litany of complaints about American unilateralism and why countries keep bringing up all the places where we haven't gone along with a particular global consensus even when they know that these agreements, you know, Kyoto, landmines, criminal court, etc., aren't going to be very effective if the United States isn't part of them. So why do they keep bringing it up? Because it's basically a way of saying to us, you can do what you want, you're the 800-pound gorilla, we understand that, but we can make you look bad. We can put you in a political position that looks awkward. Why are you the ones resisting the creation of a court to try people who are accused of genocide? You're not in favor of genocide, are you? Right? It's a way of making the United States look bad um, and make people around the world yearn for a period when we're not quite so dominant. And I want to give one more example of this. Um, I don't know if all of you can read this. This is uh, Osama bin Laden. And I put this up not, needless to say, as an endorsement uh, of his views, but I think what you want to notice here is this is actually a very clever politician. Because what he's engaged in here is a struggle for the hearts and minds of people around the world, and he's looking for any particular way he can accuse the United States of being venal or immoral or hypocritical, worthy of derision globally rather than worthy of respect. So we are a nation that permits acts of immorality, and we consider them to be pillars of personal freedom. Right? Americans want the freedom to download porn as much as they can, that's what he's nailing it here. Uh, he's got President Clinton's conduct up there, too, pretty well publicized. Um, nation permits gambling. Who can respect that? Um, you'll notice here he goes after the, uh, the feminist vote. We're a nation that exploits women like consumer products, yet we claim uh, that we support the liberation of women. Um, He's also going after the Sierra Club. He's trying to recruit them, too. Uh, you, you never realized bin Laden was such an environmentalist, did you? Um, but it, we refused to sign Kyoto, even though we're the largest producer of greenhouse gases. And finally, did you realize that he was in favor of campaign finance reform? <laughs> uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't like 
uh, the fact that rich people uh, have a dominant role. Now, again, I don't know if he believes any of these things are true. Right? I'm not endorsing his views on this. What I think is very intriguing about this, this is someone who understands that there is a struggle for legitimacy going on in the world today, and this is his way of trying to go after the United States. This is much more subtle and indirect. We are used to thinking of uh, international politics in terms of you know, military power and economic sanctions and things like that. But I think a, a key element of world politics today is this uh, problem with legitimacy. Uh, I'm not going to call it soft power because Joe Nye does that, and, and I try to avoid it. But there is something to this. Um, so let me just wrap up with a couple of comments on what we ought to do, because I've gone on a little too long. Um, one implication of this is we ought to have a more subtle and restrained foreign policy. Uh, nobody really doubts that the United States has a mailed fist, but with the mailed fist also it ought to come the velvet glove. Uh, and I've always liked Woodrow Wilson's line uh, about this, where he said, the United States should exercise the self-restraint of a truly great nation that recognizes its own power and scorns to misuse it. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't use our power uh, or even use it preemptively in certain circumstances, uh, but we want to try, whenever possible, to convey a sort of uh, sense of restraint that we don't uh, shoot first and ask questions later. Uh, second, I haven't said much about this, but we could afford to be a lot more generous. Uh, one of the other things that other countries like to point out is we give a pretty low percentage of our national wealth for foreign aid projects. We are, I think, the second lowest of all the industrialized countries, and this gets observed as well. If you want people to feel good about American benevolence, it helps to be benevolent. Uh, third, a number of people have pointed out the importance of public diplomacy and how bad we're doing at that. Um, my own view on this is it's not really just a question of spin, right? You, it helps to have a good product to sell before you go out to sell it. So you can't, if American foreign policy is doing things that are unnecessarily irritating others, then we're not going to be able to fix that problem with public diplomacy. But having said that, I do think we need a much broader national effort to understand how others see us and to communicate more effectively with them. That means more Americans who know foreign languages and foreign cultures. We're still sort of abysmally uh, bad at that, more resources devoted to it. Um, and one way to just get uh, the comparison, in 1962, at the height of the Cold War, when we really thought of ourselves as waging uh, a relentless international competition, we spent 1% of our GNP on non-military international affairs spending. That's the State Department, aid, USAID, U.S. Information Agency, all of that soft stuff. Uh, that doesn't sound like a lot, but the figure today is about 0.2% of GNP. We're spending 80% less in relative terms than we spent in 1962 at the height of the Cold War. Um, and I'd argue that that's exactly wrong because, in a sense, the problem's worse today now that we're the dominant power. When you're in our position, you actually have to spend more time making sure people appreciate it and like it uh, rather than what we had to do in the Cold War where... Fortunately, we had the Soviet Union scaring lots of people and making them want to be close to us. Uh, a final element, and it's very self-serving, is uh, we ought to keep the United States as open as possible to foreign visitors, because I think actually American society plays well for foreign visitors, and especially American universities. Uh, one of the things that I worry about is that post-911 concerns about foreign students is going to cause us to start you know, raising the drawbridge and not letting foreign students come here. I think most 
foreign students who come to American uh, universities come away with a rather positive view of America. Not all of them, of course, but the vast majority do, and that's a good thing for us. Uh, fourth, I think we need to deal with this basic trade-off uh, between our current Middle East policy uh, and our, uh, our problems with terrorism. Uh, our position on the Israel-Palestine uh, problem is a serious problem, not just in the Arab and Islamic world, but also in Europe and also in Asia. Uh, basically, nobody thinks uh, we're right there. Uh, and I might add, my own view is we are not doing Israel any favors uh, by uh, being as disengaged from the peace process as we've been for the last few years. We can say more about that if anybody wants to. Uh, so why does any of this matter? Uh, because there's lots we can't accomplish without support from others, whether it's the spread of nuclear technology, a new trade round, figuring out a way to get out of Iraq, and of course, figuring out how to ultimately dismantle al-Qaeda and prevent groups like that from emerging in the future, or at least minimizing it. Uh, let me just wrap up here quickly. The real issue I think we're facing is sort of what kind of world we want to live in for the next 20 or 30 years. My own judgment is that we're going to be the number one power in the world for a long time, uh, for several more decades, for sort of the rest of my professional life, at which point I won't care as much. Um, <laughs> But you can imagine sort of two general worlds in which the United States is number one. We're number one in a world where most countries around the world think that's a good thing, are basically in agreement with our general set of policies, uh, are supportive of American primacy, even though they occasionally are going to have disagreements. Um, call this a rather permissive environment that, in which we would be number one. A second world is a world where we're still number one in material terms, but where other states resent it, they're sort of getting up in the morning looking for opportunities to make life difficult for us, um, where Americans feel that sense of resentment when they travel abroad, and where others are trying to constrain our power, a highly resistant environment. I think it's pretty obvious we would prefer the former world, and the question is what do we do so we avoid the latter. So I'll close with an analogy. Um, World politics today is not like it was in the past in the sense that it's not dominated by sort of a dramatic clash of great powers punctuated by exciting hegemonic wars that we can all write dissertations about. Um, it's more like the relationship between parents and children. This is my analogy. And by saying this, I am not suggesting uh, that the United States is the grown-ups and the rest of the world are the children. It's just that the power relationship is like that. I have two children. They're 9 and 11. For a few more years, you know, two, three more years, I am the hegemonic power. I can still take my son and pick him up and put him just about anywhere I want to, and I have all the money in the family. <laughs> Yet, any of you who are parents know, and those of you who remember your childhood know, children, even though they're incredibly weak, have a million ways of getting what they want. They have a million strategies for carving out spheres of autonomy and preventing the hegemonic power from even getting them to bed on time. Right? Not that I, you know, I want them to bed at nine. They don't go to bed at midnight, but they don't go to bed at nine either. Right? They've got millions of ways of doing it. That's what international politics is like these days, and there's a lesson there. No parent wants to spend all their time picking up their children and forcing them to do things, actively coercing them into obedience. Most of the time we want to persuade them that our advice is good advice, 
they ought to do it because it's the right thing to do and it's good for them too. So as the United States starts to interact with the rest of the world, given its position of primacy, a lot more effort at persuasion, at convincing others to want what we want and to agree with what we are doing would go a long way. Let me stop there. Thank you.